Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you to be here with us in this place this morning, and we trust that you have kept your promise and are here. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Thank God that you're here. Seriously, thank God. I believe that you are here by divine appointment, that God wants you to be here this morning, and that you're here to hear good news. Now, it's true it's not particularly new news at this point, but it's so important that it bears repeating. Jesus Christ, son of Mary and Joseph of Nazareth, who was crucified, has been raised from the dead. He is alive. And nothing will ever be the same again. It's an old story, sure, but it's the best story, the greatest story ever told. And we're here to tell it again this morning. In 1879, Kate Hankey published a small volume of poetry and songs called The Old, Old Story and Other Verses. Now, its most famous entry is Tell Me the Old, Old Story, a song that the church at large fell immediately in love with and has been singing ever since. Tell me the old, old story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. So that's my plan for this morning. I'm not going to do anything fancy. For this week, at least, we'll put away the smoke machine and the fireworks, and we'll just tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. As Hanky wrote, Tell me the story simply as to a little child, for I am weak and weary and helpless and defiled. So my goal this morning is twofold and simple. I want to tell you one incredible thing, and then I want to tell you an even more incredible thing. First, I want to tell you in no uncertain terms that Jesus Christ literally and physically rose from the dead. Incredible. Second, and even more incredibly, I want to tell you that Jesus' resurrection is wonderful good news for you, a sinner. So, it's the first Easter morning. After Mary Magdalene discovers that the tomb is empty, she goes and tells the disciples. John and Peter run over, with John hilariously being sure to mention that he's faster than Peter. And they find that she's right. The body is gone. The linen wrappings that had been covering Jesus' corpse are folded and set aside. And then Peter and John leave, and Mary has an interaction with the risen Jesus. She doesn't recognize him at first. She mistakes him for the gardener. She begs him to tell her what he's done with the body of her Lord. But finally, Jesus speaks her name. 
and she recognizes him. He is alive. And Mary is faced with a stark truth, a truth that the entire world has had to grapple with ever since. She has come to the tomb on this morning of the third day to anoint a dead body. And here Jesus is, alive and speaking with her. So this is the first thing to say about Easter Sunday. It's not a metaphor. It's not a story meant to encourage new beginnings. It's not about fresh starts or a clean slate. It's about the man Jesus, who was God incarnate on earth. It's about Jesus, who was arrested, tried, tortured, and crucified on a Friday, and who then was alive again on Sunday. Christianity, this religion that grew up around this Jesus, was therefore never about new beginnings. It was never about fresh starts or clean slates. It was always about new life, literal new life. Here's Paul writing to the fledgling church in Corinth, only about a generation after Jesus's resurrection, putting it incredibly bluntly. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So if we're here this morning, remembering a nice philosophically and emotionally meaningful story that didn't happen in history, you can go ahead and get to your brunch reservation early. Because this is a waste of time. But that same Paul is absolutely convinced that we are not wasting our time. Listen to him lay out the evidence. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now, as you process what Paul has said here, remember how close in time to these events Paul is writing this. This first letter to the Corinthians is composed in AD 52 or 53, only 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And as Paul writes, as he alludes to in that last sentence that I read, he writes as a man who was very recently a persecutor of this church. And if during those 20 years, there had been a way to debunk the resurrection, Paul would have found it. He would have been desperate to find it. People were still alive. There were witnesses. If there'd been some cover up, they would have talked. The Jewish high court, the Roman legions, they all would have wanted to produce Jesus' body or to show that the disciples had stolen it or something. But not only could the authorities not expose any conspiracy, all of the disciples went to their own deaths, usually in excruciating martyrdom 
proclaiming that Jesus was literally and in fact alive. And this transition from death to life, literal death to literal life, is the backbone of Christianity. Because listen, here's the thing. Humans have always had a problem with God. It's a simple problem, but a mortal one. God is perfect, and we aren't. I say it's a mortal problem because God is so perfect that anything not perfect cannot survive his presence. The Old Testament is full of stories of God protecting his people by not showing himself to them. The Apostle John writes that God is light and that in him there is no darkness at all. And since we are called to live according to his perfect holiness, nothing less than perfect obedience will do. You know that constant subconscious knowledge you have that you're not perfect? This is why. Because God is. Jesus doesn't pull any punches during his Sermon on the Mount. You, therefore, he preaches, must be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. And the result of falling short of this perfect standard, as all imperfect humans must, well, back to Paul, who writes that the wages of sin is death. Using John's image of God being light, imagine that God is the sun. If you were to get close enough to the sun, and it really wouldn't have to be all that close. If you were to get close enough to the sun, you would be destroyed. Not because the sun hated you, but because you could not tolerate the heat. Such is God's perfection. A sinner simply cannot tolerate his righteousness. A sinner, therefore, must die. So the religious question that the world has asked since the beginning of time is, what are we going to do about this problem? I remember a billboard that sat along a street in a town in which I used to live. It's easy to forget how big billboards are because they're usually very tall and we pass them going 70 miles an hour on the freeway. This billboard, all billboards are enormous, but this one was set to a residential street in a very odd way, very low, so that as you sat at a particular stoplight in Ambridge, Pennsylvania, it totally filled your field of vision. And I'm sure that over the years it carried Lots of different advertisement, but the one I remember was an ad for the Marine Corps. The ad was simple. It was a giant picture, again, filling your vision, of the decorative Marine Corps dress sword, along with the slogan, always earned, never given. For many people, that slogan might as well apply to God's acceptance. Always earned. Never given. And so religions have been created, organized around this idea of earning God's acceptance. How are we going to solve this problem we have with God, this mortal problem? Every single religion, philosophy, or cult 
is organized around a god or godlike figure who lays down rules and then waits to bestow his favor on those worshipers who follow them. It's the worshiper who has to get to the deity in every religion that is, except one. When Jesus began to call his disciples, he shocked the people around him. For instance, as recorded in Luke chapter 5, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Not the righteous, but sinners. This is the thing. This is all of it. This is Christianity. Jesus didn't come to find righteous people. Jesus came to make people righteous. And so Jesus' cross and resurrection is good news specifically for sinners. God's perfection is such that if Salvation had to come by work or effort or anything at all that we could create in ourselves. We would be lost forever. The wages of sin is death, and so we would die like someone who gets too close to the sun. But instead, Jesus died for you. After living the life you couldn't live, he died the death that you deserved. And then he rose again, bringing you with him into new life in his name. Tell me the story slowly that I may take it in. That wonderful redemption, God's remedy for sin. Tell me the story often, for I forget so soon the early dew of morning has passed away at noon. So we come here week by week to remember those mighty acts that accomplished our salvation. We begin, as we began this morning, by acknowledging God's perfection. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open. All desires known from you, no secrets are hid. We remember his commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And by those commandments, we are put in mind of our sin, leading us to cry out, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. And then we rejoice. In Christ, God has had mercy. All our sin, all our failings, all our shortcomings are nailed to the cross with Christ. They are buried deep in the tomb with him. And then three days later on that fateful Sunday morning, Jesus 
was alive again. Literally and actually alive. And in him, so are we. And so now we celebrate. Our celebration takes the form of a feast, a meal at God's own table, which we, even sinners like us, are now welcome. Jesus' body and blood broken and shed for you. And the only entrance requirement? Hunger. Thirst. So confess your hunger. Acknowledge your thirst. This meal is only for the hungry and thirsty. So in a few minutes, confess with us. As we say the creed, affirm or reaffirm your faith in Christ's accomplishment for you. Don't do the human thing and resolve to do better. Do the Christian thing and believe that in Jesus you have been made new. It's the exact reverse of the Marine Corps sword. God's love and acceptance is never earned. Indeed, it cannot be earned. It is only and always in Christ given for free. Christianity, Easter, has never been about getting a fresh start or a second chance or celebrating a new lease on life or a clean slate. It's about two literal new lives, Christ's and on his account, yours. Your slate isn't clean, ready for you to try again. Your slate is full, filled edge to edge with Christ's accomplishments for you. His righteousness given to you. Here's Paul again, that former persecutor of the church who became convinced of the actual and literal resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, writing to a new church in Rome. Do you not know, he says, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So we'll tell you the old, old story. We'll tell it simply and slowly, and we'll tell it often, the old, old story of Jesus and his love. We'll tell it every week, every day, every hour, if you'll let us. Call me up at two in the morning. I'll tell it to you then. That's literally what I do here. I get to make the most wonderful announcement in the history of the world, that Jesus did not come to find righteous people. Jesus came to make people righteous. You, who were dead in trespasses and sins, have been raised to new life in and on account of Jesus. 
the very son of almighty God, who was himself raised to new life for you. Hallelujah. The Lord is risen indeed. Happy Easter. Amen.